Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. June 8th, 2023, the Chris Christie's Kamikaze Campaign Edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast, not in Washington, D.C. I'm in Toronto, Canada, of all places. Bad way to get away from wildfire smoke to go to Canada to follow it, but so it goes. I'm joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Cough, cough, cough. And from Manhattan, where the, the, the sun over his shoulder is not glowing orange the way it might have been yesterday, John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time. Hi, Emily and David. This week on the GabFest, the Republican field bulks up as Mike Pence, Chris Christie, and the North Dakota governor you have never heard of, Doug Burgum, never heard his name said, I hope I pronounced it right, join the race. Then an Oklahoma board grants a charter school license to a Catholic school. Will this free exercise clause mad Supreme Court permit this, permit this extraordinary intrusion on the establishment clause? Then the Saudi government basically bought professional golf this week. Is sports washing wrong? Is there anything wrong with sports washing or is it all okay? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder that we have a live show coming up this month, the end of this month, Wednesday, June 28th, at 6th and I Historic Synagogue here in Washington, D.C., or there in Washington, D.C., since I'm not there today. At 7.30, we are going to do a great live show. Uh, we have a special guest planned. We're not quite ready to announce it, but it's a great special guest. And you can get your tickets at slate.com slash live And Slate Plus members, you get a discount, so... Go get that discount and come cheap. And you can also stream it. If you can't make it to D.C., there's streaming available so you can watch it live. Again, slate.com slash Live for our show on Wednesday, June 28th. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. The Republican field is largely set as Mike Pence, Chris Christie, and Doug Burgum, the obscure North Dakota governor, announced they would join a very plump GOP primary field that also includes Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Larry Elder, Asa Hutchinson, and of course, the front runners, or the front runner and the would-be front runner, the would-be something, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. The There are two main topics, I think, to discuss with the arrival of these last three. The first one is, does any of them bring something special to the race that could help them break out? That's the first one. And then, more importantly, for the broader perspective, is 2024 shaping up to be a reprise of 2016, where you have a mob of smaller candidates dividing a non-Trump vote and Trump more or less cruising to the nomination, which is what a lot of Republicans who don't like Trump feared might happen. So, John, let us start with the three men who joined, all of whom to be charitable or long shots. Is Chris Christie running a kamikaze campaign? Let's underscore the premise of the question, which is that you are saying that a former vice president with almost total name ID in the Republican primary field is considered a long shot. I mean, in it just reminds you, and I'll say this a few times today, at, about how wacky this race is relative to previous races. But you have a, a well-known, um, very standard conservative by a previous definition of that body who's who is a long shot in Mike Pence. So that's just we can get back to that later. But that, um, yes, Chris Christie is going after uh, Donald Trump and he will go after him relentlessly. You may remember what he did or that is what he's saying. And that's what appears to be the plan is. And that's what he did with his opening announcement. You'll remember what he did to Marco Rubio in a New Hampshire debate in 2016, um, in which he completely dismantled the the Florida senator. And that was basically the end of of Rubio's campaign. And now he's promising to do that to Donald Trump. Uh, you remember he ran against Trump, then he was for Trump, then he was against Trump. At the moment, he's against Trump, but he's he has changed his position um, sufficient number of times that uh, you should um, take that as as provisional. Um, although he certainly seems to be going 
going after him. What do they bring to the race? I think Pence brings to the race the fact that he watched and saw Donald Trump up close. While he may go nowhere, he probably knows a thing or two that if if he uncorked it, um, and it was interesting in his first day of campaigning that he was probably 80% more combative about Trump than he ever had been before. Not that he's going to turn into some junkyard dog. He retains and has information that that could be dangerous to Trump. And then finally, Doug Burgum, you know, successful entrepreneur, governor. I mean, he has, um, he is an extreme long shot, but his argument that the that basically the Republican Party has kind of um, become too captive of the fringes um, has a lot of money behind it. Uh, and so he could play an interesting uh, role in that respect, because he has these easily identifiable credentials that some Republican voters, we don't know how many of them are still in the party, in a previous life would have been like, oh, you know, businessman, governor, uh, you know, American dream came was a chimney sweep, uh, you know, the, hey, I'm going to listen to that guy. So that's what he brings to the race. Emily, if Christie is all guns firing at Trump, is Trump damageable this way? That's what that's kind of the question I'm trying to get at. Even if you had the most rhetorically deft, fast moving berserker kind of person, which Chris Christie is Christie's smart and he's fast moving and he's quick on his feet. And he's really he's really good at a verbal assault. Can Trump be damaged in this Republican field? Yeah, I think he can be damaged. I think what is missing is what you, one might imagine if you smushed Mike Pence and Chris Christie together. So imagine someone with all of Christie's verbal slashing skills and willingness to go after Trump who also... I'm visualizing that. <laughs> but just like the attributes, right? I mean, if you had Christie's skills and you had Mike Pence's information and you were willing to uncork that information, then you might have a formidable opponent that person very well might not become the Republican presidential nominee, but they might really be able to do some damage. The other thing you would need is an audience who listened. I mean, that's the real question at the heart of your question, David, is whether any of these appeals, which are based on Burgum is making an appeal based on reason <laughs> and based on like reality. Pence is making a, uh, an appeal based on character. Um, and, and Christie is making an appeal based on policy, which is kind of weird. He's like, he didn't build the wall and he didn't pass Obamacare. Neither of those three, based on the excuses that have been made by the electorate for Donald Trump. And by the way, the other excuse being that the majority of the electorate thinks that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. Um, and therefore they are willing to excuse Donald Trump for, um, encouraging and approving of an attack on the Capitol. A lot of excuse making has been made on Donald Trump's behalf. And so, the lines of attack require a willingness on the part of the audience that we have not seen in recent history um, and that there's not Im immediate evidence of in this in this race so far. I think the fastest answer to your question, though, David, is that Jack Smith is likely to be the independent prosecutor is likely to be the, the biggest um, challenge to Donald Trump in the primaries if if Trump ends up um, getting indicted for. Uh, a variety of things from the special counsel that might um, change the race in the most fundamental way possible, more so than probably any individual candidate. So why? Why is that? Like, let's unpack that a little bit. Can we be sure that an indictment would really have an effect on that same impervious audience? I think it's a great question. And, they, and there's, there's no certainty that it could. I think what you could imagine, though, is if the indictment itself is pretty strong, contains new information, has this national security piece to it, shows that the former president in, in the most important part of their job, keeping America safe, was totally willy-nilly not keeping America safe. There would be more Republicans who might speak out, more Republicans of some stature who might speak out. You got to imagine um, uh, that they would because this is, you know, if you can't speak up about about secrets about Iran. Um, now, again, we've seen uh, a lot of standards drop and fall away. But um, uh, I, I think that of all the things out there, you know, a good speech isn't going to do much against Donald Trump, but a um, and also there's there there's Jack Smith's other mandate, of course, is the um, is related to January 6th. And so there could be additional information with that. Plus, he's got testimony from uh, a number of people who didn't testify in front of the January 6th committee. So there might be other kinds of new information. So you're absolutely right to be skeptical about whether it would change anything. But of all the things that could change anything, that's got to be considered the the most volatile variable. 
just to note, listeners, that we're taping this on Thursday morning. There is talk that there might be some legal action today. We don't know if it's coming. So if you're listening and there has been something, we didn't know it was coming. My own theory about this race is that the only two people who might conceivably break out besides Trump and DeSantis are are Ramaswamy and Burgum. Ramaswamy because he's running on this kind of crazy hopped up stew of Trumpism, Ayn Randism and bro capitalism that might like break that might form its own circus carnival in the way that that you need for a successful campaign. And then Burgum because though he does appear to be like I mean, no one knows anything about him. No one's ever heard of him. He does have a very different story and a different approach and a different line than the other. And he's not. And DeSantis could have run in this lane, but choose is choosing not to to run in the kind of competent, good for business lane. And and Bergham seems to be like, I'm going to do it, and I'm a successful executive, and also I am not an asshole. He doesn't seem to be mean, and so maybe that maybe that breaks out. Probably not. But that that's I'm just laying down my marker that if anyone else breaks out, it's going to be one of those two guys. Emily, is this shaping up to be 2016? I mean, John just talked about the Jack Smith and how that might be a different variable. But are we going to have a situation where none of these other candidates can get any traction because Trump has all the oxygen and it will make his his primary campaign quite easy? Yeah, I mean, it looks like from the way the numbers are shaping up so far that the entry of different candidates into the race eats away at DeSantis's share of the non-Trump vote but that Trump's uh, supporters are growing. So there is this way in which the more of them there are, the harder it could be for DeSantis to really take Trump on, but also he might not tumble so far that somebody else could be in that challenger position. That's sort of the dynamic so far. Obviously, something could shake it up. It does seem to me that the conditions are there for it to repeat 2016. I mean, one of the things to watch is that all these candidates who are trying to take on Donald Trump, so far the polling has shown that the more you're associated with attacking Trump, the less favorable Republican primary voters are about you. So the precondition for beating Trump is the thing that holds you back from beating Trump. <laughs> so it's like that has to un um that has that has to change. Um and then there's just the big basic like splitting the vote thing because once let's imagine Donald Trump gets indicted and somehow falls away from the race. Everybody will have kind of their favorite candidate for a while. Um because in the primaries and I don't know if this is still true but what used to be true is that voters really you would go to rallies and go to events and um you'd think like, you know, People are going to coalesce. They're going to start to get behind a front runner, and and voters would be wonderfully, you know, resistant to that. And they would say, you know, I really like Tim Scott, and I'm going to, or you know, I uh, I really like Nikki Haley. And um, so it might take a little while for this all to to sort out as well. If you were advising DeSantis, John, how would you suggest he samba in this big field to give him a chance to bring down Trump? I think leaning heavily on executive experience and competence and no drama in Florida and everybody's moving to Florida because of what we created there. Um, and because the the undertone of all of that is I can handle the job. I'm an executive in charge. I'm and it's also a negative attack on Trump without being an attack on Trump that's um, seems dramatic. It's a competency attack. So it's it's sort of like these are just the facts, and uh, you know I'm sorry, but that's the way the prospectus looks. And you can you can make the attack in the context of the thing you're selling, which is you as a serious um, executive. And then you have probably two timelines: one is pre-indictment, and one is post. I mean, if there is an indictment, it will do a lot of, um, or it will do some of your work for you if you're DeSantis, so you don't have to go throwing the long ball and doing other kinds of things um, if if you can let the indictment do some of the work for you. I must say, one thing that the, the, the Pence entrance into the race signifies is just how weird this race is. I mean, Donald Trump, by the evaluation of the most senior people in his party, encouraged the events that led his supporters to call for the hanging of his vice president. And the polls in his party show that the person who's getting penalized for that is the vice president. I mean, it's extraordinary. A CNN poll shows that 45% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents say they would not support Pence under any circumstance. That's 45%. You know what that number is for Trump? 16. 
16. Pence's approval rating after leaving office was 86 in Iowa. It's now down to 66. Only 58% of Iowa evangelicals, 58% have favorable feelings about Pence. This is Mike Pence. I mean, he's not an objectionable fellow for Republican voters. His favorability rating is 46 among Republicans. I mean, it's extraordinary. And the funny thing is you read these stories and it's like, you know, they go along and it's like, you know, since Pence left office, he's been working on courting evangelicals um, and he's running against Donald Trump, whose violent mob stormed the Capitol and called for his hanging. Like the sentences start like you're in a nor- they, they, they start like you're in a normal race and they sort of assess things. And then suddenly at the end, they remind you that this is a race in which the front runner is one who encouraged a mob to attack his vice president and the Capitol. It's like if you were listening to a tennis match and it says, you know, Nadal has a good chance against Djokovic, particularly with his serve and volley game, but he's going to have to get around the fact that Djokovic has been successfully besting his opponents by braining them with the racket before the game begins. I mean, it's just like <laughs> we, we cannot uh, restate enough. This whole campaign operates in this very, very weird environment. Slate Plus members... Uh, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. You get discounts to Slate events like our live show. You get no ads on any Slate podcast. And you can become a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest plus. And today we will talk about an unsettling libel suit in New Hampshire. Uh, and you can hear that if you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Oklahoma board that approves charter schools by a three to two vote this week approved a religious charter school, a school run by the Catholic Diocese in Oklahoma, that would offer religious instruction to students, but be funded, as charter schools are, directly by tax dollars and be effectively set up as a as a public school in the way charter schools are set up as public schools. This tees us up for an extraordinary legal battle and one that would have seemed, as Emily will explain in a minute, would have seemed idiotic just a few years ago. Obviously, a charter school, which is a public school, cannot be a sectarian school focusing on religious instruction. It's as clear a violation of the Establishment Clause as you can think of. And yet, Emily, yet we have a Supreme Court that loves the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, but does not love the Establishment Clause. And what could happen? Well, first of all, set us up. Like, What is it that is happening in Oklahoma? And what are the legal stakes? Well, I mean, I think as you said, this charter school obviously is like very clearly being run by the archdiocese. It would plan to offer religious instruction. It will not make a statement about whether LGBT employees and students will feel welcome at the school. So that suggests it's right. So it's planning to discriminate, planning potentially to discriminate. Yes, exactly. And normally that would be off the table in past years, low 
these past years in which um, the Supreme Court balanced free exercise with the Establishment Clause, and there were pretty clear rules about religion in schools. The court has issued a bunch of decisions in the last few years that really nibble away at that. Um, You know, while something like uh, half of or 55 percent of Supreme Court decisions before the Roberts Court used to go in favor of religious plaintiffs. Now it's like 80 percent. And the kinds of plaintiffs who are winning are different. It used to be that it was like people from small, marginalized religious faiths. And now it's mainstream Christians who are winning these cases. So that's why there is like a real issue up for grabs in terms of whether the Supreme Court might countenance this school. There is still, though, a really clear legal problem for this school, in my view, which is this. Here's what the Oklahoma Constitution has to say. Provision shall be made for the establishment and maintenance of a system of public schools, which shall be open to all the children of the state and free from sectarian control. And then they have a law about charter schools in which they say a charter school shall be non-sectarian in its programs, admissions, policies, etc. You know, I just don't see how that state law and state constitutional provision doesn't apply. And I think this explains why the current attorney general in Oklahoma, who is a staunch Republican, said this is not going to fly legally speaking. There is that layer of state uh, statute and constitution that should hold here, even if the Supreme Court has gone really squishy on the Establishment Clause. Let's say it's not Oklahoma is not the right state for this. There are probably other states that don't have state constitutions with that are that explicit or state laws about charter schools that are that explicit. I assume that one day a, cl- a challenge will reach the Supreme Court around something like this. Is there any reason to think this Supreme Court is is not going to swat it down the way it should be swatted down? I mean, the federal government should not, but state government should not be establishing religious public schools. Like that seems to me, this like goes back to what I feel like was the beginning of the first amendment. I mean, this, this is at the heart of the establishment of the United States is that this, this country does not have explicit sectarian government funded activities. Like we just don't. And in schools. Yes, we are used to the idea of the Establishment Clause requiring a separation between religious education and public funding. I mean, I think most of that began with the Supreme Court's big decision that it was unconstitutional to have school prayer. And that dates from 1962. And you're right that it is now seems obvious and clear. However, we had lots of sectarian, you know, quasi or fully public education in the 19th century in this country. I mean, I was just reading about the schools in New Canaan, Connecticut in like the 1830s, and uh, the New Testament was their primary text. So there, that is a kind of complication, especially if you imagine an opinion written by someone like Justice Alito, who has this whole idea of um, rooting Supreme Court jurisprudence in the, quote, history and traditions of the country. And then he really cherry picks that history and tradition to find what he wants to find there. The basic problem, though, is exactly the one you're stating, which is that we have not had this kind of um, handholding of government funding and religious instruction. And I mean, to me, the discrimination against LGBT people is really at the core of this. If you have federal and state, I don't know what Oklahoma's laws are, but in some states, anti-discrimination laws, and we certainly have federal anti-discrimination law that protects people on the basis of sex and sexual orientation, then you should not have a school with public funds that is discriminating against those people. Like, I just, that seems like the fundamental flaw here. And the reason that federal anti-discrimination law is clear on this is in part, the Supreme Court and its decision a few years ago in the Bostock case that sex discrimination included discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So there is some kind of clear um, precedent there. How exactly a majority of conservative justices will get around it, we'll have to see. It does seem like they're heading in this direction, but I also want to make clear they haven't gotten here yet. It's not like Oklahoma is like, oh, here's this Supreme Court case that makes it really clear that we're allowed to set up this religious charter school. There are a couple of cases that have taken much smaller steps in this direction, right? There's a case from a few years ago, a state had a program where they were paying for like playground resurfacing. And the Supreme Court said, okay, well, you have to pay for the new playground resurfacing at a religious school too. 
Um, and then there's the decision from Maine, which was about, remember that one's from last year and it's, um, yes, Voucher. it was Voucher. about Rural like Maine. Spent. Yes. And so the religious school couldn't be kept out of that program, but those are different levels of, uh, you know, weakening the establishment clause than what Oklahoma is doing here. I thought the main case had something to do with rural schools and that access to education was something. And does the online rural nature of this school provide, leaving aside the LGBTQ part, which I want to ask you about in a second, but it could provide an inroads. In other words, this kind of education is not available or education is not available to rural people. This is a way that people who live in the rural areas can get education. Therefore, it's not an establishment of religion. It's helping people who live in places where they don't have schools to access school. And oh, yes, it just happens to have a religious component. Well, there are schools. There are schools in rural Oklahoma. But I mean, there were schools in rural Maine, too. It's just you can argue that. Or, I mean, that's my question is whether that created a I mean, that's an interesting link. The facts in the main case were that there were there are parts of rural Maine where there's no public high school. And so then you have to go somewhere else. And the state was giving people vouchers to go to other kinds of private schools. And then the religious school said, well, what about us? And the Supreme Court said, OK, yeah, you guys, too. I, I will say that I think there's still ongoing litigation over that because then that school was, again, discriminating against LGBT kids. And Maine said, wait, wait, we don't want to send people to a school that's violent violating our laws on that. I guess you could make the sort of rural access um, school choice point, John. And certainly the supporters of this Catholic school are saying that, like that's their big argument. But I mean, that's just not before been how we think about <laughs> whether we pay for kids to go to religious school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I just meant in terms of c linking it to this, you know, the Montana, Missouri, Maine, um, uh, movement that the court has been making, this feels like it attaches to Maine. Yes. I think that's so right, John. I when you look at this case, it is designed, it is a tailor-made case to be the next link in the chain. It's also like really very, it's going to be very evocative for certain justices who have received Catholic educations. I mean, Justice Thomas, I think Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are all uh, men who were educated extremely satisfactorily and happily in Catholic schools. And I think this will be they will at least feel that emotional tug. Right. And there's another sort of legal principle or maybe philosophical one at issue here, which I think those same justices are very sympathetic to, which is the idea that to, to prevent religious schools from receiving federal funds is to discriminate against them. It's to treat them as different or lesser. It sort of turns the establishment clause on its head, right? And that's what you saw in the main case and the case with the playground resurfacing. I'm generally pretty sympathetic to charter schools. I think the city where I live, Washington, D.C., has had this really interesting efflorescence of charters uh, over the last generation. But this is the slippery slope that, that people who oppose charter schools imagined was going to happen. Like when you have n private organizations, and those private organizations in this case is a, is a church, um, establishing public schools, it creates a like it intrinsically is going to create problems like you're going to you're going to get people because they're creating schools for reasons that are not the same as the government creating schools. They're going to be a, a bunch of con men in there. They're going to be incompetence. They're going to be people who have, who have insane misguided theories about pedagogy and there'll be some great schools. And you hope that the great schools, the great models triumph. And there have been models that have been quite successful in charters, but there's also been a lot of weirdness and funkiness. And in this case, now we're going to have this test of, of a, what I thought was a pretty established principle, which is the the government does not establish religious schools. Um, is there Emily just on the on this on the main distinguishing from the main case and the Minnesota case? What is the legal difference between paying a voucher to a family to allow them to attend a religious school and directly funding a school for tax dollars? Does the Supreme Court distinguish those things generally? Well, I mean, it certainly could in this context, right? Because you could argue that the voucher is giving the parent a choice and that directly funding the school is a different level. Now, I mean, I guess the uh, creators of the school would come back and say, well, we're not forcing anyone to come to our school. So people are still choosing it. Once you start going down this lane of some government funds for some things for religious schools, it gets harder and harder to draw like a really clear conceptual bright line.
is anybody arguing or does it get laughed out of court or previously has been laughed out of court is that is to interpret the establishment clause as saying, look, we're not establishing a religion. You can go to any you can go to any of these various kinds of religious schools. We're just saying we you shouldn't be able you shouldn't be blocked from your free exercise of religion if you choose to exercise it in the educational context. Yeah, people will totally make that argument, and they have in the past. And then the question becomes, okay, well, does that mean Oklahoma is going to approve a charter school from any faith? And how do we even define what faith is? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, it seems great where you're like, okay, well, we'll also have a Jewish school and an evangelical school. But then when it's the, like, whoever's who no one really understands what their faith is who show up, then everyone gets, like squeamish yeah you're using my tax dollars to to allow people to go to the wiccan school this podcast is sponsored by ramp are you the decision maker in your company consider this for the first time in decades there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform meet ramp the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I love golf. I really love golf and I love watching golf and it is shocking how many weekend afternoons I spend watching the Memorial Tournament or the Masters or the Waste Management Open. I find it super relaxing. It is beautifully shot like high def cameras that make golf awesome. But Golf is also reprehensible. It's reprehensible for tons of reasons. And for the last year, there has been a morality play playing out in golf as the PGA, which is the American Professional Golf Organization, has largely resisted and fought an effort by Saudi Arabia to establish a rival golf tour, the Live Golf. And, and Live has lured a bunch of quite well-known professional golfers to its, its nascent tour by offering enormous payments for golfers to defect just enormous the pga and its allies rightly condemned the ugly spectacle of the saudi government led by mohammed bin salman using the 650 billion dollar public investment fund to seize control of golf and to distract people from saudi human rights violations from things like the murder of jamal Khashoggi, other nastiness um and resisted for a year but comes news this week that this was all talk. The PGA, its uh, European counterpart, the DP World Tour, and the Saudis have now buried the hatchet. They have allied to form a new professional golf entity, which is wholly funded by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. And this entity will effectively run professional golf worldwide. The PGA will continue to make rules and schedule tournaments, but all the money will come from the Saudis. Uh, and this is just one of many examples of sports washing that the Saudis and other Gulf countries have practiced in recent years. So in soccer, the other sport, another sport that I follow avidly, both the UAE and Qatar have bought and lavishly funded some of the biggest European soccer teams. Qatar bought a World Cup. The Saudis have also now bought a huge British soccer team, Newcastle United. They're also luring some of the world's biggest soccer players to play in the extremely crummy Saudi professional league by offering them $200 million a year contracts. Uh, the Saudis have created a Formula One race. They've staged big boxing and MMA matches, underwritten global tennis. It is all part of MBS's massive effort to shift the Saudi economy away from being solely oil dependent and for the country's reputation to be solely like it's just an oil shakedom to a, a diverse country that's a hub of entertainment it's a place for great tourism and a, a a globally influential country and so a lot of this is also to create global influence and it's working so john should the very these very rich guys on the pga tour have resisted the siren song of the saudi money they had they had effectively defeated live golf at the box office no one was watching these saudi rival tournaments 
No one cared about them. They had, they, they were, you know, the Saudi tournaments were not going to work. Um, but they decided they would take the chance for everyone to double their salary. Should they have resisted that? It, I guess it's a question of where their interest lies. It's even hard for me to kind of get in the shoes of what, I mean, I know people really love golf. This feels like what happened to professional football when it got, when it turned into this kind of crazy outsized um, transformers kind of thing. But I guess if your interest is in spreading the, the, the sport throughout the world, you want to hook up with the biggest bank and the principles that were once, I mean, th that were once so important to the PGA that they just, um, just completely got rid of, obviously weren't, um, you know, that important. I mean, I think they should have resisted. I'm wholly indifferent to golf. I don't know anything about it. But if this were happening to tennis, which is a sport I care about. Oh, it's it would coming be, for tennis. It's I mean, I know tennis. it's coming. It's totally coming. And I and the, the, the fact that golf just did this is going to make it easier for soccer and tennis and these other sports to get similarly um, captured or sports washed. I mean, if you have a commitment to the sport as an entity that's not merely commercial. And maybe that's like a laughable idea at this point, but some idea that there's this presence of the sport in the culture that stands for something larger, then it seems like this is not a move that you make. And I say that being very aware that, you know, the Saudis and their particular human rights violations and problematic record are like at I, I guess what I think is different about them is that they have such a such glaring human rights flaws and they have such a shit ton of money, right? It's like that's the that's the rub here. It's not that they're the only country that's like that. It's that they're also trying to buy everybody. Well, China, China, there was a sports washing effort by China a few years ago with their they spent. Yeah, it was called the Olympics, to, as I recall. Well, the Olympics and, and an effort to bring uh, uh, soccer players it was an attempt to make the Chinese soccer league a big international league and they brought in they paid billions of dollars to bring in great players it didn't really work i think china's different from saudi arabia anyway go ahead sorry well i think that but i think there's there is look i, I will not defend for one instant this the saudi government like not it's a, it is appalling what they've done is appalling but um and there's always a but uh it is not that that different from what China and Russia, notably China and Russia, have done with sports. And there is a slightly sort of racist tinge. I remember because I was in England in the in the early 80s, 1980. And when there for the first time, there were rich Arab business people who were buying British institutions. And there was so much racism in, in embedded in the way people talked about that. And it was like the, these these backwards people how can we let them in there here? And I do feel like there's a little bit of that with with what's happening now. It's a sense like, oh, these people don't deserve to be able to buy into our fancy sports. And I don't like that element of it. But I mean, you you do have like extremely hardcore, brutal repression going on in Saudi Arabia. That is a cut above. I mean, maybe not yeah. a cut above Russia and China, but I mean. It's not a cut above Russia and China. I mean, China is pretty <laughs> They're both pretty bad. Yeah, but I mean, should also note, by the way, that the compromises that are required um, in maintaining ties with Saudi Arabia don't just happen in the commercial world. I mean, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was in Riyadh this week um, and is, uh, you know, was meeting, met at length with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And the issues at stake are Yemen, Sudan, Syria. Israel, Palestine. I mean, the chief diplomatic representative of a president who said he would turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah. So lots of people make of the moment decisions with respect to Saudi Arabia. Right. I guess one thing about this I can't decide is this is getting a huge amount of blowback. There are two things that keep getting brought up, understandably, in the blowback. One of the comments that um, Jay Monahan, who's the head of the PGA Tour, I think, said, like, you know, when was the last time you were embarrassed to be, um, you know, on the a PGA Tour member and bringing up Khashoggi's murder and kind of making it seem as if there was a real moral distinction between PJ and Liv. So, of course, that hypocrisy is now being thrown up. And then there are the players. You know, a few of them were supposed to be punished for taking these incredibly sweet deals from live. And now it seems like it was the players who followed the PGA Tours rules and did not do that who are the suckers here. And it feels like those are the two 
facts on the ground that are generating a lot of the controversy. And what if Monaghan had never said that stuff? What if they'd never barred the players from those kinds of deals? Like, would we be shrugging because it would just seem like, oh, business as usual, sport is a business here. And the problem was that the PGA Tour resisted live and as you said like defeated live and then totally caved to the money it's so ironic like donald trump predicted this would happen donald trump a year ago tweeted oh you guys are going to regret this and and you're the ones who are going to get screwed you who are resisting um he recognized that money will trump ultimately well no i mean in that that is one of his great strengths is understanding the kind of basic power of money and fame. And, um, you know, it's not that different than what he said on the Access Hollywood tape. Um, he he has a clear read on people's motivations when it comes down to it. Um, and he was he was right again in this instance. So I do. I watch a ton of golf and I watch a ton of soccer. And these are two sports where the Saudis have and and other Gulf nations, Gulf states have invested a, ton, a lot of money. And I I think I'm in a way, less troubled by what's happened in golf. Because golf, it's all, everyone's an individual free agent. Everyone's playing for themselves. Um, they're all making their own individual decisions. And they don't represent something bigger. Uh, 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 Phil Mickelson does not represent a city, a place. Phil Mickelson represents himself. And people can be a fan of Phil Mickelson. But ultimately, he's he doesn't embody something the way teams embody something. And what's happened with these teams is that the there have been enormous investments by Qatar, UAE, and now the Saudis to buy a bunch of soccer teams, notably uh, Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City, now Newcastle United. The teams that have been bought by these nation states have become awash in huge amounts of money and then the best players in the world, and they be, they are dominating the sport. Uh, Manchester City is about to win the cha- European Champions League this weekend, probably, and is is funded by UAE, Abu Dhabi. And I think what's happened is that these soccer teams have strong local identities. They have, they have these huge fan bases that are about the city themselves. And when a nation kind of comes in and buys that identity and attaches itself to that identity, that feels disturbing and unsettling the way it, it doesn't when it's you know, Phil Mickelson can sell out himself. But when you sell out Newcastle United, when Newcastle United becomes a tool of the Saudi government, it brings along 50,000 fans who have built Newcastle United into, it's in their, physically in their community. It is part of who they are, how they've grown up. And that seems to me ugly in a way that the individual co-optation of, of golfers does not, uh, because it, it, it makes, it makes the new fans of Newcastle United, in some sense, complicit with the Saudi government and invested in in supporting the Saudi regime, supporting what the Saudis want. And I do not. It also makes it an unequal playing field for soccer. And so now you have these nation state controlled teams. And then in Germany, Germany, German laws basically don't allow uh, foreign investors to control teams in the way that your uh, English and French laws do. And the German teams are now falling behind because they can't compete. And so you've also created this discordancy in European soccer because only the certain richest teams get rich. Whereas, again, in golf, it's just like, yeah, you're all free agents. Go ahead. Take the money. So I'm, I'm more, more bummed by what's happening in soccer than I am what's happening in golf. Before we leave this, I was thinking about this. So, so countries export social capital all the time. But usually the way they export social capital is creating their own social capital. So you think of American music or American sport or Korean music these days. Uh, that's how those countries and they and it and it creates goodwill around the world. Uh, it creates attachment. In this case, the Saudis are not exporting their own cultural capital. They're trying to attach themselves to to capital that exists elsewhere. Um, a is that bad? And B is how is this different? How is what the Saudis are doing here different? than when the United States went all over the world after World War II and just invested in country after country after country and then expected favorable treatment because American business was in Argentina. American business was in in Honduras. I mean, I feel like it's really different. I'm not... <laughs> we're not a murderous regime. No, but also, like, we were investing in those countries and Saudi Arabia is picking up individual players and now the PJ golf tour and like trying to move as much of it as possible to Saudi Arabia. Like it's not, I don't know that it seems like the premise of the question answers it. You know what, you know what no one is saying? 
you know what no one is saying? Saudi Arabia has really turned the page. They really turned the turned the, like nobody's saying like, oh, they're they're just basically saying, you know, other things. But it's like it's not unlike the defenses of Donald Trump where people will say lots of things, but what they won't say is this is a man of character who would never do this. There's not that defense is not rolled out on his behalf. And the same is true with Saudi Arabia. Let us now go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a Saudi-funded non-alcoholic cocktail, you won't be, Emily. You'll be having a non-Saudi-funded, extremely alcoholic cocktail. What are you going to be chattering about? I am concerned about an arrest this week in Georgia of three leaders of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. These are um, organizers who were bailing out protesters of Atlanta's shorthand cop city, this big police training complex that people have been protesting in Atlanta. And what seems troubling here is these are RICO charges. That's like when you claim there's some big conspiracy and then people face many years in prison. And look, maybe something will come to light about how these organizers misuse charitable funds. But right now, it just looks like they're in trouble for having bailed people out who are protesting this city complex. And that just seems like, if it turns out to be the case, a pretty disturbing use of prosecutorial discretion. Um, the Atlanta City Council went ahead and approved the COP City funding this week. Um, but this underlying... Um, set of charges is continuing against these three people. And um, it just seems like an important one to watch in terms of potential prosecutorial overreach. That's interesting. We should do an episode about or segment about Cop City. I'm I'm I keep hearing about it. I'm really interested in it. John, what is your chatter? Eleven House Republicans blocked a procedural vote to advance a bill to ban gas stoves. The reason this is interesting to me is that the, the gas stove bill itself was, was what's called a message bill. It was basically, it's not going to go anywhere. And it was kind of based on the kind of echo chamber um, of conservative media. But the fact that 11 conservatives blocked it, even though they support the bill, is a part of their anger at Kevin McCarthy for putting together the debt ceiling uh, agreement with uh, President Biden. And they now these uh, House members have promised to keep doing this um, unless McCarthy goes back to the agreement they made in order to elevate him to being speaker. Um, and this is essentially the backlash that people thought might come in the form of a discharge petition where any single member uh, can um, call basically call for a vote on the speaker's uh, on keeping him speaker, um, which lost a lot of its power because you then need would need to elect some other speaker and there is nobody else um, in the running. Um, and so this is the way it's now um, going down. And so the question is, how does this get resolved? And there's a lot of stuff that needs to get, I mean, so how does this get resolved in the short term? Because the original promises that um, that McCarthy made in order to to um, win the speakership were all made. They were not put on paper. They were all. It was all. So everybody's redefining whatever the original promises were. were. So that's going to be a big problem. And then the second thing is that um, there's a great deal of work for the House to do um, that, like, is not unimportant. I mean, they've got to pass all the spending bills. They've got the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. They've got a farm bill to pass. Reauthorize the FAA. Um, and so while we have this one instance of Congress working, um, we now have what's brewing, not just an immediate challenge, but then like basically what feels like the first of many more of these kinds of, of challenges. Um, so Kevin McCarthy's got, uh, another thing to work out. My chatter is about, I rode a century with my kids last weekend. Um, we, we did a 100-mile bike ride on the Washington Old Dominion Trail outside Washington, me and my two, two of my kids. Um, my third was not in town, did not enjoy, did not join. It was so much fun. It was great. So riding 100 miles in a day, had a wonderful time. But I was talking to one of my college roommates. I'm still very close friends with my, my three college roommates. And one of them um, does the craziest thing I've ever heard of. And I just want to Tell GapFest listeners who don't know about the sport of rondoneuring, about rondoneuring. Do you guys know about rondoneuring? No. Rondoneuring is this form of cycling where you cycle enormous distances in a very limited time. Um, 
like enormous distances. Like you might have to do 400 kilometers, so 250 miles, but you have to do it in 40 hours, let's say. And so you don't sleep or you sleep a limited amount. And it all culminates in this once every four year race that my roommate is about to do called Paris-Brest Paris, where you cycle from Paris to the town of Brest on the Atlantic coast and back to Paris, which is 1,200 kilometers, so 800 miles, and you have 90 hours to do it. So you don't, you get like, you have very limited amount of time to sleep. You're on your bike basically for, you know, 80 of those 90 hours. And, and you're just going and going and you cycle through the night. It's insane. It's there are absolutely road races like running races like this too, right? These like, yes, yeah, it's the it's the ultra sports. Yes, it's the it's the equivalent of those those ultra mar- ultra ultra marathons. My roommate was telling me he so he did a, a warm up for Paris Brest Paris last year in Minnesota, which was a twelve hundred mile a uh, twelve hundred kilometers in Minnesota just to give him practice, and he made it. He didn't make it the whole way. He only made a thousand miles, a thousand kilometers, excuse me, so six hundred miles, and he had to stop because he had these huge fissures in his ass. From just oh, sitting on his bike. Gross. All right. That was TMI, David Plotz. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Ron Denering, amazing. Crazy. <laughs> yes, yes, it does sound amazing. That is what it does sound like. And terrible. Yes, it does sound amazing. What um do people just fall off their bikes from fatigue? I mean, is 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 it is it does no one ever actually reach the finish line? It's just who can stay on the bike longest? I think they do, mostly they do reach the finish line because they really have to train and they have to prove like in order to qualify for Paris-Brest Paris, you have to have done a 200, a 400, a 600 to show you can take it. Yeah. So I don't know, man. My roommate is alive. He's he's excited to he's excited for his ra- ride. <laughs> I once watched Excellent. a really long movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then you took a really long nap. I couldn't, I mean, 90 hours. Oh, yuck, whatever. Um, But go. Listeners, you are relentless. You are tireless. You can go 90 hours on a bike, no problem. And you also can send us great chatters. And you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. What you are talking about at your cocktail parties. Our listener chatter this week comes from Greg Hoffman. Hi, my name is Greg Hoffman from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and my listener chatter is that I recently found my old VHS copy of the 1999 documentary Genghis Blues. The film drops you at the intersection of world-renowned physicist Richard Feynman, his biographer and friend Ralph Layton, the blind blues musician Paul Pina, who wrote the Steve Miller hit Jet Airliner, and Tuvan throat singer Kangar Ol Ondar, described as the Michael Jordan of throat singing. Without spoiling the actual events of the film, it beautifully captures the magic of curiosity, adventure, and new friendship in later adulthood. The movie led to the re-release of Pina's first album after being out of print for over 40 years, and he was subsequently booked as the musical guest on Conan O'Brien in 2001, an appearance you can find on YouTube. Anyway, the film is Genghis Blues, and I can't recommend it enough. That's our show for today. The Political Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please email us your chatter at gabfest at slate.com. And please join us at our live show on June 28th. Tickets at slate.com slash gabfestlive in Washington, D.C., June 28th. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, Better than Lauren Julian. Lauren Julian is a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, which is the big public radio venture across New Hampshire. And she and other journalists at uh, NHPR are now subject to a lawsuit, as well as vicious online and even physical attacks after New Hampshire Public Radio ran a story about Eric Spofford, who is the founder of New Hampshire's largest network of addiction rehabilitation centers, uh, which 
Eric Spofford sold some years ago, but NHPR alleged that Spofford had a bad management style, that he was, uh, he was a me too. He was a me too person. And after they published a story and I think a ser- podcast series is in the works, Spofford is litigating and there have also been houses uh, uh, vandalized and just sort of online, vicious online attacks against the reporters. So Emily, fill us in. What's, why is this case interesting to you? I mean, I think this caught my attention for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's vandalism um, at the home of Lauren Trulgian, this journalist at New Hampshire Public Radio, including someone hurling a brick through a window of her house and also vandalism at her parents' house. And that just takes this like to a level of, you know, personal security and in-person attack that is startling and upsetting. And then you have this libel lawsuit, which, David, you've for a few years been expressing legitimate concern about libel suits that are just trying to shut down or, um, you know, entangle media outlets brought by rich people who just have the resources to go to court, whether their suits have merit or not. And, you know, we'll see, like, we don't have all the facts here, but it looks like that kind of case. And then this weird thing happened where the judge said that the the case didn't have enough evidence to go forward. But then he said that New Hampshire Public Radio had to turn over notes from the journalistic investigation, including off-the-record conversations that Trulgian had had with her sources. And the idea is that... Um, the radio station turns them over to the judge and the judge looks at them and decides whether to hand them over to the plaintiffs to create their case. And, you know, that is just like not the way these suits normally proceed or in my view should proceed. And that has all kinds of sensitive ramifications for reporters talking to sources and the kind of confidentiality that we can guarantee. I, I guess I, the reading about this did prompt feelings of complex ambivalence in me. I absolutely, this does feel like one of these cases where you have a, a rich plaintiff. Again, I mean, New Hampshire Public Radio has resources and it can hire a good lawyer, but it's, it's a relatively small media institution and attempting to kind of harry and make life difficult for, for both the journalists and the organization that did it. And we saw this, uh, you know, my, my friend Clara Jeffrey, who's the editor of Mother Jones, has had to fend off a couple of these suits, and they're incredibly emotionally taxing. They're financially taxing, and they they chill the free press. They chill the accountability function of journalism, and that's that's really bad. It's really bad when rich people can use lawsuits just to make it unpleasant for journalists to do their work and make them not want to do their work. And this is the kind of thing that we see happening in less democratic and less in countries with less um, less storied histories of of press freedom than the United States. And, you know, in Mexico, it's very hard to be an investigative journalist in Mexico now because of the ability of people to chill the work you're doing through physical intimidation. And people get murdered. And people get murdered. Kill journalists yeah, yeah. in Mexico. And this is and there's not that much of killing of journalists in the United States, thank God. But this form of intimidation is a is it is a form of intimidation. And and while there are remedies, there are anti-slap laws that allow media organizations to kind of defend themselves and 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 discourage those suits. It is it is worrisome when rich litigants try to suppress true coverage about themselves. On the other hand, like I mean, maybe there's no there's no on the other hand. I mean, the the other hand is I don't journalists have to realize like there is no source source privilege. Like if you're a journalist, you're not a doctor. It is not like Someone has come to you and and told you their medical confidence is in confidence. You cannot promise to any source ever that what you say will not be revealed. It is not a promise you are allowed to make as a journalist. You can try. You can say I'm gonna I will go to jail rather than reveal this. I will I will contemptuously not turn over my documents, my interview notes to court. But like the fact is, there is no privilege for for conversations between reporters and sources. And and every journalist has to know that and they have to work around that. That's just the fact of our profession. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.